3: Body two fruit. Loops, episode 103. Thank you so much for listening. Buit uh, Benafi and Bienvenidos, bitches. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we do not hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? There are <laughs> many well documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy.
1: I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294.
3: And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show or become a Fruit Loops patron. So, who are we talking about today beth today we're talking about charles
1: jr jackson who was responsible for the murders of at least seven women and one man between 1975 and 1982 in oakland california
3: oak town you know how we get down (laughs) um before we get into it how you doing Good. Um, I spent Thanksgiving alone, but
1: I cooked anyway because I like the smells of cooking on Thanksgiving Day. It's not Thanksgiving unless you oh, hear the so cooking or smell the cooking. Hear the cooking. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's
1: so true. Hear sweet. and smell the cooking. So yeah. I cooked turkey breast and some sides. Yeah, I cooked all day like an idiot.
3: <laughs> oh no 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 no! Not not my Beth. There was a. That's a good idea. Right? I I even
1: made rolls from scratch. I have tons Shut of up. leftovers.
3: Are you serious? Rolls yeah. from scratch.
1: From scratch, yeah. What
3: time of day did you start? In the morning,
1: like eleven or something. I don't know. Nine nine, ten, eleven, I don't know. Oh <laughs> oh right (laughs) then uh my daughter was cooking too and when we we planned it so that we'd be ready at the same time and i zoomed with my daughter her husband and my grandson and we ate our dinner together
3: oh that's so sweet
1: yeah it was nice and uh then i parceled out the leftovers into containers and froze them so now i have a bunch of homemade thanksgiving tv dinners nice (laughs) nice So in other words, it was good. My daughter and her family are also doing okay so far. So knock on wood and thanks everybody for putting them on the prayer list. When the praises go up,
3: the blessings (laughs) come down. That's yeah, that's and it's true because it's working so far. (laughs) So far, knock on wood. Yeah, so that's really good to hear. And I'm happy that you and yours are still doing okay. Um, And that you slayed in the kitchen and uh, you are set for weeks We got your Zoom on and everything is a-okay so far. Uh, Over here, we had a nice Thanksgiving by ourselves. Uh, We Zoomed uh, with the family uh, and uh, we did, like I mentioned, we were going to do. Talked about the indigenous land that we all occupy and a little something about... um, you know, where we uh, inhabit. And uh, I got into uh, several fights with my children about the true history of Thanksgiving, because that's not what they learned in school. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I told them about the genocides and the massacre. And look, the truth hurts folks. This is what the kids need to learn at a young yeah. age. The truth hurts sometimes, but we'll all be better for it. Um, but it was nice. And I just hope that everybody listening is doing okay. I don't want to yeah. say you're doing good. Oh, I'm doing good. Cause that's a big <laughs> fat lie. It's 2020 <laughs> and I am just barely today. Okay. Uh, honestly. Yeah. 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 Hang on, <laughs> I can still breathe. Um, so my eyes work, um, doing okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me feel my body parts. I I think I'm okay, uh, and I hope that you listening are are doing the same. Everybody, just let's just try to be oh. Okay, and not terrible because 2020 one star give 2020 a one star review (laughs) i would give it half a star if i could yeah and speak to all the managers of 2020 (laughs) uh well that said now we're going to get into some listener letters
2: oh thank you
3: yes very nice what is in the bag beth well we got a fabulous
1: instagram message from rafael alfredo yeah so uh, So. we're going to try to play that for you we couldn't figure out how to download it so we're gonna play it into the speaker here it goes Okay.
2: okay it really has been a raggedy ass year thank you thank you thank you um I love you guys so much. I still want to record. If you love to comedy, you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. Oh. <laughs> That's for y'all. Um, I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for bringing me through this fucking pandemic. Thank you for absolutely everything. Love you guys. I literally tell everyone I know about you all the time. Keep doing your fucking thing.
3: Oh, my
1: God. (laughs) That That... message made my day when I listened to it. I'm telling
3: you, we received it. And I was like, Beth, drop all of the things that you were doing. Uh, You need to log into our Instagram account and listen to this shit right here. Because this was, I mean. Again, 2020 has been the braggadiest of years. And this just lifted our spirits up so it high. Really so did, thank you yeah. so much, Raphael Alfredo. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Ooh, you you give us life. You gave us yes, life. So yes. thank you. Holy moly. I want to make my ringtone. Uh, <laughs> or my alarm when I wake up. Uh, did you, oh, that's a good idea. Did you idea. hear the falsetto on the, here's a that was for excellent. You. I loved it. Yeah. Oh (laughs) my goodness gracious. That (laughs) is going to carry me through the end of this year. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, What else we got in that mailbag?
1: We got an Instagram message from Jamie, who said, I just discovered you gals from your spotlight on the Murder Squad with Billy and Paul. I love your pod. I almost ran out of true crime to listen to, but now I have a lot of catching up to do. Mm -hmm. I also love the combination of politics slash culture corner slash discussing racism and learning anti-racism. I can learn all the things while also listening to true crime. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) thank
3: you jamie yes jamie (laughs) yes thank you so much uh we also got a new patron jordan f now i was gonna do this and it's the only one this week so i get to devote a little bit more time and thought to it i was gonna do ray charles but i don't want to put y'all to sleep so here (laughs) goes out in the street they call it murder welcome to jordan that is uh i've been listening to a lot of reggae this week and if i didn't do it justice jordan just know that we love you and appreciate you thank you. thank you
1: beth Who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Charles Jr. Jackson, a serial killer active in Oakland, California between 1975 and 1982. He was identified as the killer only a few years after his death, based on results from DNA profiling. Jackson is suspected of committing several more murders during the 1970s and 1980s around the Oakland area, in which at least five other serial killers were also operating at the same time.
3: Five! Aye, yeah yes. All right. Well, let's get into the stats out in the street. They call it murder. <laughs> well, uh, Charles Jackson Jr., a.k.a. the East Bay Slayer, although there have been a few serial killers tagged with this moniker. Uh, Jackson was bo- a black man born in on February 12th, 1937. He was born in Louisiana. His crimes took place in the Bay Area of California, where Wendy was born and raised. And Beth, too. Ow. Okay. Well, the crimes <laughs> took place from 75 to 82. Beth? Do you recall? Uh, I <laughs> do recall those times?
1: Yeah. No, uh, I left in seventy-five because I knew he was coming.
3: Uh oh. Well, I was still a zygote in my dad's <laughs> nutsack. But I did ask my mom about this and she she didn't know anything. So yeah. anyway, she's an immigrant. You just do your work, put your head down, and don't well, pick that I th- actually things.
1: never heard of this guy before either. So all oh, right.
3: Well, here we go. He had seven known victims. So let's speak their names. Rest in power queens and there's one king uh sonia higginbotham was 19 killed in june 1975 in oakland and johnson 27 was killed in august of that same year in oakland Cynthia Waxman was an 11-year-old girl, killed on April 22, 1978, in Moraga, California. Henry Villa was 62, and his wife, Edith, was 59. They were killed on November 22, in 1981, in Albany, California. Betty Grantswig was 37, killed on December 4, uh, 1982, in Oakland. Uh, Gail Slocum was 34 killed on December 8th, 1982 in Oakland and Joan Stewart was 44 killed on January 2nd 1982 also in Oakland um, uh, again we he has we seven known victims was that seven one two Oh, it's eight. Eight It's eight total. total. Seven women and one man. Seven women, one man, eight total victims. But it is extremely likely there were more. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Jackson was apprehended on January 8th, 1982 and sentenced to life in prison. And his ass died in February 2002 in Folsom State Prison of a heart attack. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. (laughs) Right? Isn't that how that song goes? Anyway, I have no idea. I got it wrong. (laughs) Uh, So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth.
1: Oakland is a city in the county of Alameda, Northern California, in the eastern part of the San Francisco Bay Area. The earliest known inhabitants were the Huchuin tribe, who had lived there since time immemorial. And you're not going to believe this. But the indigenous people were just minding their own goddamn business when oh, the boy. Spanish conquistadors <laughs> came in and just claimed California for the king of Spain in 1772.
3: Son of a bitch. This story <laughs> Son happens of a bitch. every, every <laughs> single time. Every time. Uh, I don't know what it is about, like, (laughs) white people and imperialism and colonization. It's, I just, it's like they're crack. They can't help it. Um, Anyway... <laughs> uh, upon its independence from Spain, the area was given to the Mexican Republic. Then as part of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo after the Mexican-American War, the Mexican government c- uh, ceded 55 percent of its pre-war territory to the U.S. in exchange for 15 million dollars. That's why uh, that's what Mexicans mean when they say the border crossed us. So, yeah, s- you <laughs> we didn't cross the border. Yeah, you crossed us. So, yeah, uh, it's very literal. The San Francisco Bay
1: Area in California was rampant with serial killers from the 60s through the 80s. There was, of course, the Zodiac. Then there was one called the Doodler because he sketched his victims and he's suspected to be a black man.
3: Get out! Yeah! Heard of them.
1: Cool. There was also the Santa Rosa hitchhiker killer, and none of these killers have been identified as of yet. And of course, the Golden State killer, who was finally identified in 2018.
3: Wasn't that an exciting day for true crimers Yeah, I mean, I it was
1: super exciting. I, it was yeah. almost like winning an election or
3: something. <laughs> I know. I know, that's exactly how I, I almost couldn't believe it. Uh, It was so, it was just so exciting. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, in fact, while our killer was active, there were at least five other serial killers at work in the same area at the same time. During the 20th century, California and the West Coast in general had a high rate of transplants and immigrants compared to the rest of the country. For nearly a century and a half, the state had a, had a Sustained growth rate that nearly doubled its population every two decades. That's pretty amazing. Impressive. Yeah. Way to go, California. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the San Joaquin Valley is a central valley in California, located just east and south of the Bay Area and runs south down to Bakersfield. The San Joaquin Valley produces the majority of the agricultural production that comes from California. It is also the state's primary oil production region, which, you know, until recently, I didn't even know they produced oil.
3: I didn't either. Um we used to go to Bakersfield pretty regularly and people would be like, when we'd, we'd be like, yeah, we're going to Bakersfield this weekend. People would be like, why are you going there? <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. there's really not much nothing, to Bakersfield. Nothing there.
1: Yeah. Why did you go there?
3: Uh, we just had a friend and we would go see the Nutcracker every year. Oh, okay. and, uh And we'd have a big sleepover and uh, my friend's mom, we were in fun. college. Yeah, we were yeah. in college and – my friend's mom, she was like one of my not white friends and she was Japanese. And her it was just cool to be like surrounded by not all white girls. For uh, like yeah. Yeah. A that makes sense. Days. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. There uh-huh. were actually
1: a lot of Japanese farmers. Um, I don't know if throughout the San Joaquin Valley, but mm-hmm. where we lived in uh, San Jose, it was like just at the border of oh. San Jose and like just south of us was all farms and there oh. were a lot of Japanese farmers and I oh, had a lot yeah. of Japanese friends yeah.
3: Interessante. I love it see that's what we need is friends of all you know, walks of life. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just nope. its a wonderful thing. Not a lot of white people can say that, which is, Beth, one of the reasons why you're one of my favorite white ladies. Because <laughs> all your friends are not, your friends aren't just snow. You've got a, <laughs> an array of friends and it's beautiful. Uh, where the hell are we? Uh, oh, here we are. In the 1930s, hundreds of thousands of uh, migrants from the Great Plains and the Midwest who had lost their homes and livelihoods in the Dust Bowl moved to California looking for jobs. The press called them Dust Bowl refugees, but they came from a broad area encompassing four Southern Plains states, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas and Missouri, More than half a million left the region in the 1930s, mostly heading to California. Many of them ended up in the San Joaquin Valley.
1: And for decades after World War II, California was a destination for Americans in search of a better life. In many people's minds, it was the state with, quote, more jobs, more space, more sunlight, and more opportunity, unquote. According to historian Gerald Nash, the war remade California and other Western states and California emerged from the war with a highly diversified economy. A huge military-industrial complex focused on aerospace and electronics industries complemented an increasingly efficient agricultural economy. In
3: 1940, over 40 percent of those who had moved to the San Joaquin Valley from the Dust Bowl were farm workers, but many of them did not stay in the San Joaquin Valley, attracted by factory jobs or the military. Only 25 percent of Midwestern migrants remained farm workers by 1950. California
1: also had an educational slash business service sector that developed rapidly in the 1950s and 60s as state officials invested massively in schools and universities building what they hoped would be the finest public education system in the country. And by the late 20th century, California had turned into what some have called, quote, a job creating and population attracting machine, unquote, unlike any other U.S. state.
3: Prior to World War II, Black Americans constituted about 3% of Oakland's population. But World War II attracted tens of thousands of laborers from around the country, and thousands of Black people were part of a second great migration to the city from the south. Sharecroppers like my grandparents and tenant farmers who were recruited to work in these shipyards. The influx of
1: black and white shipyard workers from the Deep South brought Jim Crow attitudes to a part of the country that had largely been free of it. In addition, black people further suffered from federally enforced redlining, which designated Fruitvale and other Oakland neighborhoods as unfavorable. For instance, a 1937 homeowners loan corporation map of the area indicated these so-called detrimental influences, quote, odors from industries predominance of foreign inhabitants, infiltration of Negroes and Orientals, unquote.
3: Yeah, back when, before... Before uh, the times We are in now uh, This is the saying the quiet part out loud (laughs) That is so awful To see like in 2020 But holy moly No shame Uh, Many Mexican Americans from states like New Mexico Texas and Colorado came to Oakland To work in the many wartime Jobs as did Mexican nationals Who came under the Bracero Program we've talked about that in past episodes Mm -hmm. Many worked for The Southern Pacific Railroad at its major rail yard in West Oakland. While some
1: of the rail workers lived near the yard, most of the Mexican community was concentrated, as it always had been since the early days of the Peralta Ranch in the Fruitvale District. Oakland experienced its own Zoot Suit Riots in downtown Oakland in 1943 in the wake of the one in Los Angeles.
3: Now, I thought Zoot Suit Riot was just a trendy song, but... (laughs) It's a real thing. You know what thing. I'm talking about? Zoot Suit Riot. Riot. they a bottle beer. Zoot Suit riots. Riot. Yeah, riot. Yeah, I gotta <laughs> put a comb through your cold black hair. Cherry popping daddies. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, the OG and true crime comes every time. Uh, yeah, I had no idea until we did this episode. It was a real thing. Excuse my yep. ignorance, but the Zoot Suit Riots were race-related riots that occurred during the summer of 1943. American Servicemen and other white people attacked and stripped teenagers and youths who wore zoot suits, ostensibly because they considered the outfits, which were made from large amounts of fabric, to be unpatriotic during World War II. But guess what? This will surprise you. It was due to racism. Starts with the R <laughs> and ends with the acism. Holy moly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Unpatriotic. Pretty yeah. shitty. Yeah. Get the fuck out Whatever, here. dude. Yeah. <laughs> Get the
1: fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> By the end of World War III, Black Americans constituted about 12 percent of Oakland's population, and the percentage continued to rise after the war ended. With it came a rise in racial tensions. Starting in the late 1940s, the Oakland Police Department began recruiting white officers from the South to deal with the expanding Black population. Mm. that can't be good. Doesn't
3: sound (laughs) doesn't sound good. No, that's not a
1: good plan. Uh -uh. Many were openly racist and their repressive police tactics exacerbated these racial tensions. Who'd have thought that would happen? Yeah. What you thought? (laughs) (laughs) And by the late 1950s, Oakland found itself with a population that was becoming progressively more poor and racially divided.
3: Side note, if you look at all of the racial unrest throughout history or the riot, white people call them rise, it's riots, BIPOC people call them uprisings or um, uh, when the people when there's social unrest, it's usually after the police do something fucked up to a person of color or or somebody from an othered or marginalized group and the mm. people stand up. Yeah. Detroit. We've talked about riots like Detroit, um, LA riots. It's, it, it always seems to happen when the police engage in some fuckery. Now Yeah. Beginning in the mid-1950s, much of West Oakland was destroyed after the Nimitz Freeway was built. Then many homes and businesses were destroyed to build the Cypress Viaduct and the rest of Nimitz Freeway. Also, urban renewal, which is a term that makes me want to throw up because it's just a euphemism for Negro removal, caused the destruction of the area around Market and Seventh Streets to make way for the Acorn High Rise Apartments.
1: This quote-unquote urban renewal of West Oakland continued into the 1960s with the construction of BART and the main post office building at 1675 7th Street. Because of all this construction and quote unquote, urban renewal. Many families were displaced from West Oakland, and the majority of these were African American and Latinx. African Americans relocated to East Oakland, especially the Elmhurst District and surrounding areas.
3: The Chicano movement is also part of Oakland's history in the 60s and 70s. Starting in the late 1960s and continuing into the early 80s, the number of Latinx people, mostly of Mexican origin, began to increase in Oakland, especially in the Fruitvale District, which always had a concentration of Latinx residents, businesses, and institutions.
1: This district is one of the oldest in Oakland, growing up around the old Peralta Estate, which is now a city park. Increased immigration continuing into the 21st century added greater numbers in Fruitvale and throughout East Oakland.
3: In 1968, the Oakland police murdered a young Chicano named Charles Pinky DeBaca on 35th Avenue in East Oakland. A group called Latinos United for Justice organized to combat police brutality after Mr. DeBaca's murder. Told ya. Yeah. Chicano
1: radical militants like the Chicano Revolutionary Party and the Brown Berets also organized and began doing work in the Fruitvale district to protect the Chicano and Latinx community from police brutality, and they had a free breakfast program in the Fruitvale area with the help of the Black Panthers.
3: That's awesome. It is. Yeah, I love it when uh, Black and Brown people get together. Yeah. I I, uh, I don't know if it's Teddy Roosevelt or Lyndon B. Johnson who said, if we can convince the poorest white person to believe that they are just even a little bit better than the best Black or Brown person, then we can pick his pocket Without him oh, even noticing, or some something Jeez. like that. That's that's the quote. Don't don't quote me, but it's something like that. But it's just really really awful. So when Shitty. when yeah. black and brown people get together, I just that's that's a way to come back. Warms your heart. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's it's beautiful. So on July 26, nineteen seventy, the Fruitvale District held the Chicano moratorium against Chicanos going to fight in the Vietnam War. Uh, la Clínica de la Raza was also formed on Fruitvale Avenue in nineteen seventy by Chicano students in order to have a free clinic for the Chicano and Latinx community in East Oakland. La Raza Unida party also had a chapter in Oakland. Unfortunately,
1: you can't talk about the 1980s and BIPOC people without talking about the war on drugs. As in many other American cities during the 1980s, crack cocaine became a serious problem in Oakland. Drug dealing in general, and the dealing of crack cocaine in particular, resulted in elevated rates of violent crime, causing Oakland to be consistently listed as one of America's most crime-ridden cities.
3: Yeah. And I wrote in the doc BIPOC, but it really was a war on black people and brown people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the term BIPOC, I feel like needs to be defined. Welcome to Culture Corner. BIPOC (laughs) stands for black indigenous people of color. And the reason why I love the term and a lot of people do, I know some people hate it, but black people have a, a, um, a unique struggle in uh, a white supremacist world in the United States. Indigenous people have a separate, stru- a separate history and struggle. Uh, and then people of color is everybody else. So you, it's, um, it's a way to appreciate, honor, but also group us all together in that we're not white, but our experiences are slightly different. different. Yeah. Um, During the late eighties and into the early nineties, Oakland's black population reached its peak at approximately 47% of the overall population. Oakland was the birthplace or home at one time to several rap acts. Here we go. Y'all including MC hammer used to tell people he was my cousin. Digital underground. I (laughs) Hieroglyphics, including Souls of Mischief Mischief, and Del the Funky Homo Sapien, The Loonies, Tupac Shakur, and Too Short. uh, I love Too Short. Outside the (laughs) rap. The outside the rap genre, artists such as the Pointer Sisters, who and Vogue, Tony 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 has done it again, and Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day, who was supposed to be my husband at some point, uh, didn't work out. Also emerged from Oakland <laughs> in
1: 1930. Only about one third of California residents were actually born in the state. Whoa, and its population increased by 137 percent between 1960. 1960- in 2010. The trend is now reversing, but during the time that Jackson lived there, it was in full swing. The influx of migrants and the transient nature of the population may have made California and the West Coast in general a breeding ground for serial killers in the mid to late 20th century.
3: Ooh, I feel like that deserves law and order music. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows
0: on the morning of august 1st 1966 shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the university of texas campus it marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in america
2: And I've sat silently and listened to the heart wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.
0: Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.
3: So now we're going to get into Jackson's early life. If you forgot, we are speaking of Charles Jackson. And we found very little about his early life, but Charles Jr. Jackson was born on February 12, 1937, in Louisiana. Shortly after his birth, his family moved to Mississippi. M.I. Crooked letter, crooked letter, I. Crooked letter, crooked letter, I. Humpback, humpback, I. Mississippi. (laughs) Anyway, where Charles Young grew up in the countryside. His father was an alcoholic who was aggressive towards him and other family members. Jackson
1: dropped out of high school in the early 50s and was functionally illiterate. He started spending a lot of time on the street and he became involved with the criminal subcultures and soon became a criminal himself when in 1953, at the age of 16, he was arrested and charged with burglary. Jackson then spent most of his life in and out of prison for multiple crimes.
3: Now we're going to get into the timeline, the actual crime. So after his arrest in 1953, over the next 28 years, he was repeatedly arrested for committing crimes such as burglary, rape, assault and child molestation. He would get arrested on a charge, spend some time in prison, be released and then commit More crimes when he got out. All of his murders were committed during times when he was on parole, and all of his victims were white. We
1: don't know when, why, or how Jackson ended up in the Bay Area. It may have to do with the second great migration by Black Americans from the South to the Bay Area after World War II, or uh, maybe he had family there. We don't know. In Mm. any case, he was living in the Oakland area by 1975.
3: According to Rockney Rock Harmon, who was the prosecutor for one of the murders, Jackson would drive around in an old beat up truck looking for victims. Uh, Jackson would go door to door looking for handiwork and yard work. Harmon said, and if there was a woman home alone and she opened the door she was dead. Yikes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And in June of 1975, 19-year-old Sonia Higginbotham was murdered in her home in Oakland. She was found sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. And then in August 1975, 27-year-old Ann Johnson, the wife of a Highland Hospital physician, was found stabbed and sexually assaulted in her home in the neighborhood of Montclair in Oakland. We unfortunately don't know much about these crimes or the victims, which we looked, but we couldn't find much about them.
3: Forgive us. But if you know something, you know where to find us. On April 22nd, 1978, 11-year-old Cynthia Cindy Waxman, this one is the saddest one, and her cousin were at a Saturday afternoon uh, baseball game at Capolindo High School in Moraga, California, just east of Oakland, when they wandered off after a stray cat. While her cousin uh, returned home to get some money to buy food for the cat, Cindy stayed behind. When her cousin returned a few minutes later, both Cindy and the cat were gone. Cindy's
1: mother found her body later that afternoon in some bushes near the school, which is really sad. Mm -hmm. A synthetic rope was knotted tightly around her neck and her hands were tied with the same rope. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted, but she was not stabbed. Mm. The next crime did not take place until 1981 because Jackson had been jailed for rape.
3: But not rape of Sydney. Cindy. No, no. Else.
1: Um. Yeah, so he, nobody knew who killed Cindy, okay. but he had raped another woman and was jailed for that.
3: On September 12th, 1981, Jackson was paroled from prison after serving three years on the rape conviction. Three years is of- nothing. And he'd committed rapes before. It had been in yeah. prison before. That's that's. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, And he returned to Oakland. He started work as a day laborer for some time, as well as doing other odd jobs. He had been in prison seven times by this point. On November 22nd,
1: 1981, 62 year old Henry and 59 year old Edith Vila, described by friends as quiet, unassuming and lovely warm people, were attacked in their home in Albany, California, located slightly north of Oakland. Henry was a construction company executive. Jesse Kelly, a friend and client who happened to be black, said that he always felt comfortable around Henry and that he was a generous man who didn't hate anybody.
3: Jackson broke into the couple's home while they were sleeping in an upstairs bedroom. Henry Villa is thought to have been roused by the noise and to have confronted the intruder and was stabbed to death in the bedroom after a struggle. Their bodies were found by their son, Richard. Edith Vila had
1: been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in her bed. The house was ransacked and the phone was ripped out of the wall, suggesting to investigators that Edith Vila may have been trying to call for help. Semen was found in Edith's mouth and police were able to pull hairs from the bed and a comb that was found, which were later tied by DNA to Jackson.
3: On December 4th, in the wee hours of the morning, 37 year old Betty Joe Grunzwig was attacked in her bedroom in her Trestle Glen neighborhood in Oakland. Betty Joe worked as a job placement specialist in an employment office, and she was a running enthusiast who had participated in the 1980 Oakland Marathon.
1: She had recently separated from her husband and was in the process of getting divorced. She told a friend that she felt like she was being watched, mm. and she told her sister that she had received several obscene phone calls.
3: Interesting. I wonder if his in in his endeavors as like a handyman, odd jobs that he maybe he was aware of Betty Joe and even even the um, gentleman and his wife, right? The right. con- the guy who was a construction company executive, yeah. like if yeah. he was aware of them, like they weren't it's really strangers. Yeah, in my head, I'm going with it. Uh- <laughs> It was a little after 4 a.m. when Betty Joe's 12-year-old daughter Jennifer awoke to muffled screams and found her mother stabbed but still alive. The perpetrator had thankfully fled. Betty Joe told Jennifer, "I think he was a rapist." She was rushed to a local hospital where she was pronounced dead 90 minutes later.
1: Skin was found under Betty Joe's fingernails, which was later linked to Charles Jackson, but Betty's estranged husband Kenneth Grunsvig was the main suspect for many years, although mm. Charles Jackson Jackson was at least a suspect in her murder.
3: Okay. Um, four days later and approximately three miles away on December 8th, 34 year old Gail Slocum, a mental health clinician described as friendly and outgoing and dedicated to her work, was murdered in her yard in her Rock Ridge neighborhood in Oakland. Gail was a boarder in the
1: house living with several other people. And when she did not appear for dinner, the other residents of the house became alarmed. After a brief search, they found her body lying in the bushes in the backyard.
3: Oh, my God. Uh, Gail had been sexually assaulted, strangled with her own scarf and stabbed to death. Uh, Jackson was a suspect in her murder and DNA on Gail's clothing was later matched to Jackson. (laughs) Thanks,
1: Danny. Both the Trestle Glen and Rock Ridge neighborhoods in Oakland were described as fashionable and well-established, and given the short time and distance between the murders of Betty Joe Grunswick and Gail Slocum, the people in these areas began to
3: freak the fuck out. Hell yeah! Yeah. Residents pulled together to hire their own private security service to pato- patrol neighborhoods to augment the Oakland police patrols, and Betty Joe's HOA offered a tenth reward for information leading to the conviction and arrest of her murder. Now I just wanted to bring this up because, uh, HOAs are one of the banes of my existence. Welcome to Culture <laughs> Corner with Wendy and Beth. Um, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but this should be a surprise to no one who listens to Fruit Loops. HOAs are racist and a, a, a lasting um, element of white supremacy in our neighborhoods today. HOAs came into being in the 1950s and 60s. My blood's already boiling thinking about my <laughs> enormous fees. (laughs) When uh, redlining was the law of the land, Um, covenants commonly excluded three groups of people at the time, Jews, blacks and Asians. Now, even though the Supreme Court ruled that HOAs violated human American civil rights, they have since come up with other ways to, quote, keep riffraff, a.k.a. Non-whites uh, out, and HOAs continue to perpetuate racial and economic segregation to this day. So, That's if you're up. if you are in the market for a house, if you can avoid an HOA, whoo, save yourself and do <laughs> so, <laughs> because oh my god, those motherfuckers yeah, are yeah. such petty bitches. Yeah, anyway. They are. Next! (laughs) On
1: January 2nd, 1982, Joan Stewart, 44, a San Francisco City College biology professor walked down to Montclair Village about a mile from her home to buy some groceries. As she was walking home with her bag of groceries, she was attacked, raped, strangled, and stabbed several times. Her Mm. throat was also
3: cut. Joan's husband Charles reported her missing that evening when she did not come home, and the police allegedly searched for her but did not find her. And it was her husband who found her dead body at about 8 a.m. the next morning lying among some trees and shrubbery down the hill on the side of the road about a quarter mile from their home. Joan's
1: groceries were strewn about and her purse was left by the side of the road. Only her wallet was missing. On top of her purse, police found a piece of Canadian bacon wrapped in a paper napkin. They learned that Joan was a vegetarian, so they believed that the killer had probably left it.
3: That is a really interesting element of the story. I- I, Came across that fact too when I was researching the case. Yeah, and I was like, "What? What the fuck? What yeah. the hell?" Her hu- well, maybe I, I thought maybe her husband, but if if this dude is f- like stalking people, right? Um, which is my theory. If he's following people, uh, maybe he was in the grocery store, like snag some Canadian bacon, like is just munching on it, waiting for his moment. <laughs> And it's time. And then he like goes in, does his, you know, evil business and leaves the forgets the bacon Canadian yeah. bacon there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Anyway, that's my theory, and I don't care if it's wrong. Uh, The presence of sperm in the mouth of the corpse proved that an act of oral copulation had taken place. Multiple scrapes and bruises on Joan Stewart's face, left arm, legs, right hip, abdomen, and back, which had been inflicted before her death, proved that her participation in that act had not been voluntary. She had died as a result of strangulation and a cut on the left side of her neck, which had sliced through her carotid artery. During the investigation, several
1: eyewitnesses were found
3: who had seen a
1: distinctive car prowling around the neighborhood, a white 1958 Cadillac covered with primer spots. Apparently, Jackson had been cruising the neighborhood trying to get children to get into the car.
3: No! Oh, my God. <laughs> and
1: I'm sure that a black man in this neighborhood also probably stuck out like a sore thumb.
3: Yeah. And uh, by now, 911 is like a thing by now. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so uh, it's strange to me. I mean, white people call nine one one for so many interesting reasons. Yeah, yeah,
1: selling water. Yeah,
3: yeah, I'm surprised nobody called it. Uh, There's a black man. There is a black man. Yeah, I mean, and perfectly good reason. I mean, we know now he's a serial killer, right? But like, um, come on, guys. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nobody would have called you racist If you called 911 on Charles Jackson Uh, I'm just saying (laughs) So now we're going to get into The investigation trial and arrest And not necessarily in that order Uh, Three days later The distinctive Cadillac Was spotted by police And Jackson was arrested on a parole violation A visit to Jackson's mother Revealed that she often made him breakfast And she kept a roll of Canadian bacon In her freezer Jackson was later charged with Joan Stewart's murder, plus robbery, attempted rape, and other sex-related accounts. There were
1: two murder trials. The first ended in a conviction in 1983, but it was reversed due to trial judge error, although his convictions on forced oral copulation, use of a deadly weapon, and inflicting great bodily injury stood so he was imprisoned on a 16-year sentence for those crimes, and uh, that's a new one on me.
3: Yeah, that's interesting, and I wonder what the judge, what the judge's error was.
1: You know, I I, I read about it, and it was like a technical error, um, uh-huh. something that he said to the jurors, and oh. yeah, it was just like a something silly.
3: <laughs> oh man, <laughs> so
1: yeah, but they were able to get it reversed on it.
3: Okay, so here cut to 1986. Jackson was retried. The second trial for Jones murder took a toll on her husband, Charles Stewart, who moved to northern Washington with the couple's son. But the jury deliberated for only three hours before finding Jackson guilty again. And he received a sentence of life.
1: At the time, Rock Harmon said he was convinced that Jackson was responsible for other killings. And in the ensuing years, Harmon helped pioneer the use of DNA science in murder cases and eventually became a national expert on the subject. He actually served as a DNA expert in the O.J. Simpson trial. And at the time, DNA was considered as kind of suspect as
3: evidence. While you were talking about this rock harmon, gentleman, Mm -hmm. I began to hear saxophones in my head, romantic (laughs) saxophone music playing only because I know about how you feel about the other FBI profiler, dude. And Preparara, this guy seems like he's right up your alley. I haven't I haven't seen pictures of him, so I, I don't know. I know, but I don't know if pictures would even matter to his brain, his brain, and his work. That seems like what really. I love your big brain. Yes, look, listen to you. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Beth. You You so dirty. Family. (laughs) Just kidding. So anyway. I wasn't even listening to what you were saying. It's just, I was just hearing all these saxophones. Uh, Uh, And and romantic music. Anyway, so now I will get back into the story. Sorry for the distraction. Uh, Harmon never forgot Jackson and began ordering up DNA tests for genetic material collected from a long list of unsolved Bay Area killings. Paul Holes, I heard him talking about this, started working in Contra Costa's County Crime Lab after graduating from UC Davis with a degree in biochemistry. He also went through the police academy and became a sworn officer.
1: Paul Holes found himself drawn to the investigative side of police work. According to one source, Holes is quoted as saying, I very quickly got more interested in the investigative side to the point where the other guys in the lab were saying, that's not your job. (laughs) Contra Costa County does not include Oakland, but it does include the city of Moraga, where Cynthia Waxman was murdered. And Holes became interested in solving her murder.
3: Mm, he's one of the good ones. Yes. And in 1999, Jackson was linked via DNA to the 1981 murders of Henry and Edith Vila, but he was not charged in those murders right away. Instead, Rock Harmon wanted scientists to complete more DNA tests on evidence from from a string of other killings for which he was suspected. We can't make a charging decision until we address all the cases we think he's committed, Harmon said. I can't tell you if we've even scratched the surface with this guy. When officers visited him at Folsom Prison, Jackson declined to talk
1: about the case or even leave his cell. Dang it! But through the work of law enforcement, including Paul Holes and Prosecutor Rock Harmon, he would be tied to seven
3: more murders. Mm, that's what's up. Yep. In 2005, Jackson was tied to murder of 11-year-old Cynthia Waxman. Police long suspected serial killer Philip Hughes of the crime, but advances in DNA testing linked Cynthia's murder to Charles Jr. Jackson. Cynthia Waxman was Jackson's only known child victim, which threw off investigators. I don't think he was even on the radar for that one.
1: Yeah, they thought uh, Philip Hughes did it, so they were they were trying to uh, tie him into it.
3: Oh, okay. Is Philip Hughes a uh, gentleman you know much about?
1: I don't. No. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I just found out about him researching this case.
3: Oh, well, there you there you have it, folks. It's OK. <laughs> She'll I, come I through another I time. I know all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. We still love Maybe you, Maybe someday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> From the DNA research, Jackson Jackson's involvement was also finally revealed in the murders of Sonia Higginbotham and Johnson, Betty Jo Grunsvig and Gail Slocum. Jackson's murders were all committed while he was on parole and during his last time on parole from September 13th 1981 to January 8th 1982 Jackson killed five people but Mm. as we said there's reason to believe he may have killed even more
3: that's right so now we're going to get into where are they now well Charles Jackson spent the rest of his life in the Folsom State Prison, where he died in February 2002 from a heart attack. It wasn't until a month after his death that DNA testing connected him to all of the murders we discussed in today's episode. So that's a, yeah. that's a happy ending.
1: Yeah. And Lauren Waxman, Cynthia's father, was grateful that investigators did not forget Cynthia. Quote, mm. I'm gratified that the sheriff's office continued to work on this case and find the killer, he said. This yeah. gives me gives some closure for the family. This also removes blight for the community of Moraga, which was hit hard by Cynthia's murder. I'm glad for the community as well.
3: Yeah, that's that is that's um, wonderful that, that yeah. her dad said that. And Kenneth uh, Grunswick was finally cleared of his wife, Betty Joe's murder. Finally, man, for him to be considered responsible for that long is had to have taken a toll. He had moved to the Pacific Northwest, but had always lived under a cloud of suspicion. He did marry again. And his wife, Glenda Burgess, wrote a book about their lives together called The Geography of Love, a memoir released in 2008. And Kenneth died in 2003.
1: Jackson's true victim count is currently unknown, and there were at least five other serial killers in the same area during his murder spree. Philip Hughes, Daryl Kemp, the East Area Rapist, who was identified as Joseph James D'Angelo, the I-5 Strangler, who was identified as Roger Kibb, and Joseph Nasso.
3: So many serial killers. Uh, Jensen and Holes did an episode on this guy and they are looking for more victims. You can listen to their episode on the Murder Squad posted on July 29th, 2019. Yeah. Uh, So now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made Mr. Jackson snap. What do you got, Beth?
1: Well, these crimes all took place in more affluent neighborhoods and suburbs, and the victims were all white. So um, it's hard for me not to draw some sort of conclusion there. Yeah. It would have been way easier, I would think, if he had targeted black women, but he didn't. Uh huh. So I'm thinking he probably had a lot of pent up anger towards more affluent white people. Mm-hmm. And understandably so but uh not to the point of murder especially a child you know i understand the anger but uh don't kill people
3: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean be an activist yeah yeah (laughs)
1: exactly yeah however i think that we really have to take a good hard look at ourselves and i'm i'm talking to my white cousins out there. Ooh, your brethren, Yes, in. yes. And at the very least, admit to the role that we as a people have contributed to the problems that our BIPOC friends and relations have had to deal with and continue to deal with. This is not to say that we should be ashamed to be white. Uh, we can't help being white any more than any other race can help being what they are. But mm-hmm. we can use our whiteness, which is a power, to lift up our BIPOC friends and at least try to rectify some of the wrongs that have been done. It's, it's not a solution, but it's something we can do.
3: Here comes my glory. Dear. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Beth. And uh, I apologize. I said, uh, shout out to your uh, uh, white brethren and sister, but also uh, non-binary folks. I'm sure Beth was talking to you too. Yes, Um, But here you (laughs) go again, all the people spitting (laughs) bars that make me fall in love with you even more than before. That's how you be an ally and an accomplice, folks. Beth, hip hop arrow horns. Um, And what Beth said is absolutely true. Now, we all have a certain amount of privilege, right? But you don't have to feel bad or guilty about it.
1: Yeah, it's okay. uh, Because it's
3: not in your control. Right, exactly. Just be aware of it. And when you recognize opportunity to use it to help somebody else who doesn't have it, that's, that's, that's the key. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for example, I, uh, have able body privilege, right? So right. I don't have to be an asshole about it. I can just use my privilege in the event I see somebody who may not share this privilege, who might benefit from it, either by me speaking out, um, and, uh, demanding that my building manager, um, insert ramps or wheel, t- you know, wheelchair accessible, um, amenities, uh, you know, things like that, Right. Uh, that I can do to help somebody who doesn't share the privilege that I have.
1: Right. Um, and all, all of this to, um, you know, it's, it's better for the individuals, but it's also better for our society in general. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tragedy that so many people have to walk around with all this pent up anger. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's not not good for our society.
3: Yeah, uh, I must say this case was a surprise to me because yeah. a, I had never heard of this guy. And also all of his victims were white in yeah. Oakland. Now, from what I remember from Oaktown <laughs> is that it growing up in the 90s. It was not very white at all. In fact, it was very, very,
1: very black. Uh, I think it depends on where you live in Oakland. I looked on the map, Mm -hmm. uh, on the Google map and... um, you know how you take that little guy and drop him down? Yeah. Street, street view. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, okay. I did street, street view. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I think it depends on, on where you live in Oakland as to um, how affluent it is or not.
3: Okay. That may be true. I, I, I was not, uh, anywhere near any affluent areas. I used <laughs> to go to Oakland. I used to go to Oakland to buy my hair for my, um, my braids and my weaves and stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, you know, we had family there, but, um, I, I, when I went to Oakland, I never saw any white people. Wow. <laughs> so, um, that's why I was really surprised that there was so many white people like, in the story. Th- where is this guy like, finding what? these white people to what kill? If, what? Oh, There's no white people in Oakland. I I think there is now because of gentrification. But I just I just thought it was um, interesting. And then another thing of note is that um, this is before the tough on crime attitude. Right. It was 1980, 81, 82. Right. When um, sort of the uh, the, at the height of the uh, war on drugs, but no legislation yet to do anything about it. And right. that's when uh, the approach, that horrendous consequence of the 90s crime bill um, came came into effect. Um, and I just think that Charles Jackson is the kind of criminal that lawmakers had in mind when creating those tough on crime policies, right? Yeah. Like three years for rape, when you've yeah. done it, numerous times and you keep getting out i mean he's a menacing dangerous repeat offender right um, preying on the you know uh, on defenseless white women and girls right and for jackson um that tough on crime approach might have prevented some of the deaths that occurred in his wake um, but it
1: was rape and murder you know you don't have to be tough
3: so tough on crime
1: for like petty offenses. <laughs> that
3: will but right, but it was but yeah. But it was bur- it was burglary and it was rape and he kept getting out.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh but yes, I agree with you. <laughs> you don't have to be tough on crime <laughs> on petty offenses. Agreed. And uh you are not wrong and I don't see any lie in what you said. <laughs> But, Charles
1: Jackson, but with this guy, yeah. Yeah,
3: with this guy, yeah. This I mean, guy, he deserves yeah. to have the whole book thrown at him yeah. and then be buried underneath the jail. <laughs> uh <laughs> and all the books thrown at right, him and, and then, then set on the books, fire ex- exactly but um yeah I was just I was just thinking like he if he had been born in a different decade maybe he wouldn't have gotten out even after yeah. committing such terrible crimes
1: yeah probably um,
3: yeah that's all I meant to say but thank you for leading me there oh it's just um, talking just chatting yeah, just chit-chatting, just just, just, I don't just a know little what the friendly fuck I'm banter. About. Yeah, it is late. Uh, also, <laughs> um, what was I going to say? I don't know. I don't know what it was that made him snap. If it was his childhood cumulative, cumulative adverse effects of racism, discrimination, poverty. Quien sabe. I don't know.
1: Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know either. And my only guess is um, that he was angry um because of his lot in life and yeah. um be- because we don't know what happened in his childhood mm-hmm. except for his father was an alcoholic yeah so pro- probably abusive but yeah. we don't really know
3: yeah he could also got fucked up in prison you know uh, yeah that too that's true time.
1: yeah you're right about that that could have been something that happened in prison yeah yeah so this is another one of those where we're just like throwing shit and see seeing if it's sticks, what
3: sticks. <laughs> hey why don't you join join in and throw shit with us and let yeah. us know what you thought about this case <laughs> what made charles jackson snap uh you know what are your takeaways all the things you know where to find us yeah Get into how not to get murdered. So, if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
1: This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Well, what do you got, Beth? Because he broke into homes. um, I just uh, thought we'd give some tips about preventing home invasions.
3: Yeah, these are yeah. these are oldies but goodies. Yeah some basic tips. Uh, So here goes. Uh, Keep your lights on. Security systems with home automation can be utilized. But if you're broke, like me, use cheap-ass timers on your lights when you're going to be away. Leave your TV or radio on so prospective burglars hear voices. Um, Doors are the primary entrances entrances for burglars. Garage doors are often the easiest to breach, followed by the back door. That is why I always say keep your inner door to the garage door locked in fact make sure all your doors are locked all entrance doors should have a solid core and make sure your door frames are solid and not rotted oh that's a good one you can reinforce a basic wooden door with a few inexpensive metal strike plates Who's going to do that for me? Um,
2: (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll do it myself. Old
3: whitey? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, not this old whitey. (laughs) A, (laughs) A strike plate is several inches high and covers part of the door's front, side, and back. Similar reinforcers can be installed around door handles so that... They are more difficult to remove. Use heavy-duty quality deadbolt locks. Consider a video doorbell, which may deter intruders. And um, now that they're more popular, I think they're going down in price. Yeah. I Um, I
1: can't wait until they're they're affordable. (laughs)
3: Come on, Groupon. Come on, Groupon. Let's go. Mama needs a new doorbell. Uh, uh, Don't stash a key outside. If you tend to lose house keys, then automated door locks with keypads might be a good solution. You might also rely on a trustworthy neighbor, but make sure they also store your spare key in a smart location and not tagged with your name and address. <laughs> uh, uh, windows can also provide access for an intruder, particularly ground floor windows and windows visible from the street or alley. But even upper floor windows can be accessed from a stairway, tree, fence, or climbing on balconies. Use blocking devices to prevent an intruder from being able to slide a window open from the outside. But keep in mind that any window blocking Devices should be capable of being removed easily from the inside in case of fire. Yes. Uh, Avoid leaving an item near your home, which might be used as a step. Ooh, that's fire. Store your ladders and stackable items, such as heavy boxes, in a locked area. Keep your snow shovels and other potential break and entry tools out of reach. Uh, Trees and brushes can conceal prowlers. Make sure the overgrowth doesn't provide hiding areas. And you might consider planting cactus or thorny bushes beneath windows. Uh, Ooh, that was a mouthful. (laughs) And now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content by or about any marginalized folks. Um, So I wanted to shout out Trial 4 on Netflix. It's a true crime docu-series. Tells the story of Sean K. Ellis, who was unjustly convicted uh, in the 1993 murder of a Boston police officer, John Mulligan. Wow. And... He was in prison for 22 years and the series covers the corruption within the Boston police department. Told y'all I told y'all and the DA (laughs) office that the authorities desperately and sloppily tried to. Oh, wow. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. And since 2020 isn't done fucking with all of us, uh, I wanted to leave y'all with something to make you laugh. Uh, It's a podcast, but it's by Netflix. Netflix is a daily joke. And the episodes are like three to six minutes long. Every day, it's a clip from a stand-up comic. um, And they have an incredibly diverse set of comedians, women, BIPOC, LGBTQ. And I can count on it for at least one laugh a day. Oh, awesome. Um, The rest of the day, I'm crying, pulling my hair out, full of nervous gas. But for five minutes, (laughs) I can (laughs) smile and laugh.
1: So the podcast is called Netflix is a Daily Joke? Yep. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Yeah subscribed there you go
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so i got nothing i uh i haven't really been watching anything new this week um mm-hmm. but i have been re-watching star trek the next generation um so just yeah shout out to star trek for always having diverse characters from the very beginning and storyline storylines that provoke thought so
3: i'm telling that's you it. never never missed an episode yeah yeah never miss uh, and the diverse (laughs) cast was what really you know lured me in and i have a soft spot have you so you haven't seen the undoing no i haven't seen the undoing okay i won't talk to you about it
1: okay uh now the undoing so i need to watch that what's that on netflix it's hbo max hbo
3: okay yeah okay but it's 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 good Okay, I'll check it out. Um, Well, that's all for today, folks. Uh, Beth, in the meantime, where can the people find us?
1: Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app, or just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website.
3: Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
0: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.
2: True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Or wherever fine podcasts are found.
0: The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore.
2: I know you know what happened.
0: They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess.
2: U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood.
0: And at the center of it all
2: is 25 year old Sergeant Frank Wooderick.
0: And me. Murder in house two a new podcast from Crowd Network.